Right, so how do I get control of the, um, the phone? I don't have it. Oh, it's good. Oh. No. Now, I don't have any arrows. How do I get arrows? I just go. Pardon? Right, great. No? This could be more fun. <laughs> right. Okay. So, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Cheska Tennant, one of the occasional preachers. And we're carrying on this series about Jesus in encountering people and transforming their lives. And today it's the healing of the paralyzed man. And what I want to do, possibly or possibly not with pictures, is look through everyone who takes part in this story and how they felt and what their role was. So let's start off with the friends. Wow, wouldn't you like friends like this? Or wouldn't you aspire to be a friend like this? They cared so much for this guy, this paralyzed guy. They'd heard about Jesus, they might have seen him, and they felt that Jesus was going to be the one who could fix him. They were full of faith. And it doesn't say so in Matthew, but you know the story in Mark and Luke, don't you? How they made the hole in the ceiling of the house and dropped their friend through it so that he could be right there with Jesus. Full of faith. So let's start. Let's start with doing a little diagram. And we start at the top with the people who are full of faith. <laughs> so this is going to be fun. I really need some arrows. Arrows would be... Oh, there, got it, got it. It worked. Right, so we can really go with speed now. So let's look at the next lot of people. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is actually their first appearance in Matthew. They'd been hearing all these things about this young rabbi and they've come to suss him out for themselves. And they're very anxious when they see him and for good reason, because he says he's going to forgive sins, but they know that only God can forgive sins and anyone human claiming to do that are just committing blasphemy. So they've got reason to be worried. But the problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that they had a really strong idea of what God wanted and they figured they knew it. And because of that, they weren't open to God working in any different ways. But also, because they thought they knew it and they were doing everything right, they'd lost their ability to, to be aware of their own sin. So this meant that they couldn't come to Jesus and encounter him and be transformed. And we might 
deride them and we might be rude about them, but I think it's an issue that all of us can um, fall into if we're not careful. So let's add them. So we have full of faith at the top and not able to have faith at the bottom. So let's move on to the paralyzed man. Now it's interesting because if you look at how Jesus started his ministry, it was with preaching. And what was he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So forgiveness of sins was obviously very important to him. And he knew that the only way this ministry could end was on a cross with him dying for the world. And yet, almost all the time, he just healed people. He never bothered to forgive their sins first. So why do you think he forgave the sins of the paralyzed man? Now, this is what I think. Remember, the Jews were the people of God. And their whole life revolved around God and obeying the law from what they wore, what they ate, how they worked, how they used their leisure time. Everything was based around God and their service of God and the fact that God loved them and chose them. But when God took them to the promised land, he gave them the law and he said, if you obey my law, then you will live long and healthy lives. And somehow this had got translated to, if you sin, you'll get sick. And there's a clear connection and it's the, the sick people are the biggest sinners. I don't think that that's actually supported in the Old Testament, but it was well believed. So that an example would be in John 9, um, Jesus and the disciples encounter a blind man and the disciples say to Jesus, is it because of his sin or his parents' sin that he's blind? So that connection was obvious. So here's this poor guy. He's disabled. He can't work. He can't look after his family. We don't know how he became paralyzed. And not only that, he's fantastically stigmatized. The belief is that he deserves to be paralyzed, that he's done something terrible. So it might be that he has done something terrible, but you kind of feel the loyalty his friends had, that he was probably a pretty good guy. And he was probably like most of us here. We always want to do the best, but we're flawed human beings and we fail. So we end up with a burden of disappointment in ourselves and a sense of failure. And I think he probably had that. But beyond that, the fact that he must be a worse sinner because he was paralyzed meant that he had a lot of false guilt as well. Guilt for something he had no control over at all. And I think false guilt is a big, really big problem for human beings. That's why Satan's the accuser, isn't it? Because he gets us to feel guilty for all sorts of things that we're not guilty of. And that paralyzes as much as any sin that we do or think we've done. So he was physically disabled, but he was also spiritually disabled. He believed God had turned his back on him and punished him. And he was stigmatized. So let's put him as a need. And then we move on to Jesus. 
Now, whatever we say about Jesus, the one thing we can't say is that he was just a good man who, who gave some really wise teaching. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, because of the things that Jesus claimed about himself, you can't just say he was a good man. He was either something really spectacular and special, like he said, or he was a liar, or he was crazy. And here's a real example. Because by forgiving the guy's sins, he is actually saying that he's either God or he has the authority of God. It's interesting what he calls himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a really clever title because all it means is a human being. So he's just saying, a human being. Except it's much more than that because there are a few bits in the Old Testament where the Son of Man means far more than just a human being. I'm going to read now from um, Daniel 7. And Daniel had a vision. There before me was one like a son of man, son of man, come with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is claiming something really massive, isn't he? And of course, anyone can say that, but Jesus could put as many where his mouth is. So Jesus says to the man, pick up your mat and walk and the guy does so now we have our four bits we have faith and lack of faith we have need and we have Jesus filling the need and then we have the encounter so what happens so here we have this man broken physically mentally spiritually believing himself to be a terrible sinner, to be worthless, that God has turned his back on him. And what happens here is God, his God, standing in front of him. And what does he say? He doesn't talk to him in judgment. He says, take heart or be encouraged, son. Term of endearment. Your sins are forgiven. And suddenly... The guy loses the spiritual and the mental trauma that had plagued him maybe even more than the physical. And then, of course, he picks up his mat and walks. So there's the encounter. Now, there's one more group, and that group is the crowd. They're watching and they're seeing it all. And it says that they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. But the thing about the crowd was they watched, but they had choices. They could just go home and think, wow, that was exciting and get on with their lives. Or they could seek this same encounter. It was a choice. So, our last one is our crowd. 
and their, their responses. And the thing is, all of us need this encounter with Jesus. And not just once when we become Christians, but because we're human beings and we forget easily, we need to have this encounter over and over again. We need to come to the one who hung on the cross and died for our sins. We need to bring all our burdens to him and knowing there is nothing too big that it can't be taken by Jesus and destroyed on the cross. And that's what we need to do. So what I want to do now is I want to give us all an opportunity to meet with Jesus this way. So we're going to have a, a little time of meditation. So if you want to just get into um, meditation pose, then you can either look at the pictures or you can make the pictures in your head. Just take some slow, deep breaths. And as you breathe out, just breathe out all the things that are keeping your mind from concentrating on Jesus today. Breathe in the presence of Jesus. Breathe out your burdens. And imagine yourself... You're in a house, it's crowded, it's hot, it's sweaty, there's no room to move. And there is Jesus. And who do you identify with? Do you identify with the friends? Do you have a burden for people? Do you long to bring them to Jesus? Do you long for them to be healed? Or have you gone off course? Are you like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? That you've become proud in what you believe and you've lost sight of God doing new things? Are you like the paralyzed man, burdened with true and false guilt? Or are you like the crowd? You've seen this great thing and you have a choice now. Do you follow Jesus or do you go back to your ordinary lives? Just think what burden you want to bring to Jesus. And now, you stand before Jesus. And he looks at you straight in the eye with no judgment. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he looks at you and he says, be encouraged my child 
Your sins are forgiven. And just hold yourself in that place.